In this episode of Josh Reads Other People's Published Poetry, I'm going to read 1. Origami the Madeleine by Clive James from his book Gate of Lilacs. 1. Origami of the Madeleine From the taste of the scallop shell of cake, made moist by the decoction of lime blossom, it all unfolds inexorably, the vast structure of recollection. In his tongue, Edifice immense, de souvenir. Though it is structure only in the sense that Gordy's Cathedral in Barcelona and the weird Watts Tower in Los Angeles, eclectic stalagmites of junk, are structures. Or the sandcastle you helped your daughters build before you sat with them to watch the sea dismantle it and smooth it out and take it back down to where it came from. Architecture, Proust's novel really isn't. Though he sets great store by the idea of frozen music. He claims to gaze for hours on end at any stone steeple that recalls the gothic spire of a Norman church near Bulbeck. We doubt that, and then recall Ronaldo Hahn's account of how, while touring a strange house, he left Proust fixed in a place, admiring a rose bush. When Hahn came back a long time later, Proust was still there. Was Proust posing? Hahn asked too, but eventually concluded he was not, and so must we. We can regret his wit- wetness. My poor, poor little hawthorns, he would cry, clutching them to him as he bowed his grief, astounding you that such a total weed could ever have become the wise and brave soldier for Dreyfus, and brought his great book to full bloom in the hothouse of his dying. But never doubt his powers of concentration. When Thomas Mann made notes about how Proust made notes, he was acknowledging an equal. Proust, as man saw, was fascinated by the way a beetle, laying up the food for the children that would thrive after its death, bored through the central nerve of the wrapped body of a victim so that, though it could not move, still it would live. That was a scrutiny that Proust could focus on the social life of the great world, describing its coherence, the web that tied the Faubourg to the brothel. It detailed reverence yet without the curve of rigid prejudices prejudiced against the rise of Demos and its verve. His grandmother had shown him the imaginative power of tolerance. She thought her local tailor a true wit and a fine man. Proust took note, and when the time arrived for him to gauge the Beaumont's actual human sympathy behind its posed facade, he had the tools. Those who believe that nothing really changes in Proust, that he is just the belly pock affirming its longevity, a plush box at the opera like Renoir's La Louge, in which sits a new face with the old, an old title, have it exactly wrong. Everything changes, and his whole world, the fashionable world, is on its way out, even as he loves it, yielding its primacy to the upcoming world of creative thought, for which he sets a standard by including in his scope the splendor of what was, but is no longer, unchallenged. And indeed, he was a throwback. The saloons had given way to cafes, new term, demi-monde, was coined to cover Melia, best reported by Colette, blessed by the fortune of her humble birth. The gifted hung out with each other. He, however, was condemned by privilege to serve his sentence in a melting prison without parole, and see, inside the flow of time, what drove it forward, yet appeared to hold it still, with code of style and manners, the invitations on the mantelpiece lined up like the last guardsman of an army that had been routed by Napoleon, a favour granted and a kiss withheld. 
On both the smaller and the greater scale, his texture of perception testifies, in every paragraph, no matter how extended, to the pinpoint penetration of his gaze. He said the literary merit of an author could be measured at a glance, and said it while informing us that Swan could instantly assess a smart event from one peep at the list of attendees. Swan's snobbery was Proust's, and yet Swan's love for Odette, which included her bad taste, assures us of Proust's seriousness, of how, within the limits of his birth and class and poor health and of being just one person, he made the whole of life his stamping ground, even our jealousies and weaknesses, a, a synthesis he introduced by linking the paper flower and little cake, all his precision and his subtlety, blaring to life from a mixed metaphor. Thank you. And on to the commentary for one, Origami of the Madeleine. So the full title of Clive James's book is Gate of Lilacs, a verse commentary on Proust. And you can read them, you can read, there's 15 poems in this collection, and you can read them individually, but it is actually much nicer and much better to read this book uh, cover to cover. Um, it's a lovely little, little book. Um, it's not that, and has, you know, the introduction's really interesting, the post script's interesting, and he has this note section at the back, so he doesn't ex assume that every reader is going to know what he's talking about. And so he actually does explain a fair few key terms in his notes section of this book, which is really good, even if you are a, a fan of, of In Such a Lost Time, it's still good to have these little bits of, of reminders at the back. Um... A quick note on the book, Gate of Lilacs, uh, Proust, you know, first commentary on Proust. Clive James actually acknowledges in his introduction that he, that, I'll quote it, it took me 15 years to learn French by almost no other method except reading A la recherche de Tom's Perdu. If you've ever read In Search of Lost Time, A la recherche de Tom's Perdu, the idea of learning French by almost no other way than reading that is just impressive. It's awe-inspiring, or it's just crazy. Maybe it's all three. Um, but not only did he, he learn French by reading A la recherche sans in French, he didn't just read one English translation. He read the original English translation, which was done by Scott Moncrief, um, who actually finished the first volume, Swan's Way, in time for Proust to get it, and Proust read it, read the translation, he said the only thing he didn't like about Scott Moncrief's translation of Proust, of Swan's Way, was that Moncrief called the book Remembrance of Things Past, instead of In Search of Lost Time, only criticism Proust had about the whole thing, the whole translation. And so after Clive James reads Moncrief's translation, he then reads, um, the new this translation that came afterwards, which was a guy by the name of Terence Kilmartin, um, updated and, I guess, augmented Scott Moncrief's translation. Sort of just tidied up a bit and put bits in that weren't available to Moncrief when Moncrief was translating. And then he goes on to say that he read a third English translation by the poet D.J. Enright. I hope I pronounced that properly. And then he goes back and reads the uh, Moncrief version. Uh, which is just astounding. 
that he would um, read versions in English and learn French by reading Proust. Um, and what you get in the first poem is you get Clive James's enthusiasm for not just in search of lost time, not just that wonderful sort of massive, sprawling, 3,000-page novel, but he, there's also that admiration for, for Proust as a writer and what he accomplished in La Recherche de Thomas Perdue. Um, and I think what really sort of sums up Proust is this part here where in the very, almost the very beginning of the poem, he says that uh, Ronaldo Hahn left Proust fixed in place, admiring a rose bush. And then when he came back a long time later, Proust was still just there, just staring at this rose bush, admiring it for what it was. Um, but that he could just fix on something. And he took, he took a society that was going out. You know, this was just before World War One is about to break out. In fact, volume five or six happens during, is actually set during World War One, And you get this kind of brief glimpse, like you get, you hear, you read about the streets of Paris going dark during bomb raids and it's all very visceral. So suddenly you are very suddenly in um, Paris, 1914. And the reason I picked the very first one is also because it's, uh, I think Proust is well known for being the guy who wrote 3,000 pages because this guy dipped a biscuit into some tea and, and remembered a bunch of stuff. Which is an incredibly crass oversimplification of In Search of Lost Time. But you get this, even in Clive James's poem, and you get this throughout the whole book, is this appreciation for what Proust was able to do. Considering he was sick, he spent a lot of his time in a cork-lined room that was soundproof, and he didn't do much except write because he was just so sickly. And yet he still managed to create this amazing world with these wonderful 3D characters. That when you, if you ever read it, or if you have read it, you'll know what I'm talking about. There is no character in that book that feels like they're there as a plot device, because then you'd have to actually argue there is a plot, and have fun with that argument. Uh, and so the reason I really read, I read this was because I really enjoyed this book. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of Proust, obviously, I hope I've got that one across, and Clive James is just such a good poet, and it reads like poetry, it sounds like poetry, and when I read this the first time, when I read the first commentary, The Gates of Lilac, the first time, it put me back into In Search of Lost Time, which was just, you know, a testament to how good Clive James's writing is, and how well he remembers In Search of Lost Time. I hope you enjoyed my reading of the poem. I hope this commentary has been interesting. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I always appreciate your time. Thank you.